Blinken went to China. Why did he go? What happened? What does it mean? Is World War III more or less likely to happen thanks to this visit? Um, to discuss, I have two fantastic guests today, uh, Professor Dolly Yang of uh, the University of Chicago, as well as Nathaniel Schur, who works at the Carnegie Endowment. Thanks so much for joining China Talk, you two. So let's take a step back. Um, Blinken was supposed... Oh, so we're... Sorry. So we're recording this on Juneteenth, just a few after hours after... Uh, Secretary of State Blinken, uh, he's probably on the plane back to the U.S. He's probably on the plane to Europe right now. Anyways, so um, early 2023, Blinken was supposed to go to Beijing, but then something happened flying in the air. I think uh, getting back to the Bali meeting, of course, is truly the first meeting uh, after uh, President Biden became the president. And of course, the two had many meetings and spend a lot of time together previously when, when actually uh, Biden and Xi were both vice presidents on, on both sides, actually, so sort of, uh, so they knew each other and uh, quite well uh, in that process. What's truly remarkable was because of zero COVID in particular, uh, the relationship really was in deep freeze. Uh, in, and of course, she didn't uh, make international visits uh, since returning, uh, after returning from uh, actually Burma in January uh, 2020. So that was the first major meeting between Xi and Western leaders, uh, uh, actually so sort of in a major international setting uh, for actually so sort of more than two years, essentially. And what actually truly struck me was the, the photo that was released um, by both sides, actually, with Xi and Biden in broad smile, uh, really so sort of smiling uh, with hearty smiles. And I think they really intended to send a message that we really want to rebuild this relationship and so on. And of course, in the process, they also outlined a number of areas uh, actually to sort of uh, uh, to work on, including, for example, uh, the issue of green security, climate, global health, and so on, agriculture a little bit. Uh, although not much sub substance at that point, but the effort, it was made very clear by both sides that they wanted to stabilize the relationship, especially after a very, uh, very uh, destabilizing summer of 2022. So we have... Um Summer of uh, Pelosi goes to Taiwan. Lots of drama there. Um, in the fall, uh, I think it was November, right? We had uh, the G20 meeting in Bali where we have this like magic. I don't know how magical it was. We have a spirit of Bali where it seems things are not about to entirely fall off of a cliff. And sort of building off that, there was this expectation in early 2023 that um, uh, Secretary of State Blinken would go to China. Um, we have a balloon. Um, it, which gets uh, a spy balloon, which gets dramatically shot down um, uh, off the coast of uh, Myrtle Beach, of all places. Um, for our international listeners, this is like a spring break party location, famous for lots of mini golf. And then sort of following that, uh, Blinken decides to call off his visit. And we have sort of six, you know, four or five months of this interesting, rather awkward dance of uh the u.s and china trying to figure out just how they're going to want to re-engage at the at the highest level we have blinken we have the balloon and then i think there's this there there's this debate um that starts um popping up of whether it even makes sense to keep uh sort of pushing for these uh pushing for these high level dialogues what's the point and what are the potential downsides of uh of uh of the u.s trying to pursue these high level meetings um I think just from a, a high level, uh, the U.S. and China, many issues in the relationship that have potential to lead to crises, if not conflict. That high-level dialogue, while it can't resolve the many uh, structural issues in the relationship, it can at least ensure that uh, each side does not misunderstand um, the other side's intentions towards these structural issues. To give one example, the U.S. often mentions this phrase of uh, reducing mis the risk of miscalculation. And to put that in concrete terms, I think there is a very real risk at the present moment that 
on Taiwan. Obviously, each side has can divergent interests um, that dialogue alone can, can never solve. But at the same time, um, if each side misinterprets the the other's intentions, then what can happen is a, a structural issue that maybe long term can result in in a short term crisis, if not conflict. So. There, on both sides, the Chinese side, there is a view that the U.S. is using Taiwan to not only contain but potentially uh, instigate some sort of conflict with with China uh, in order to derail China's national rejuvenation. I, I think that's couldn't be farther from the truth. The U.S. has no interest in conflict with China. On the U.S. side, there's a view that uh, Xi has a an accelerated, preordained timeline for reunifying with. With Taiwan, and this is leading to an increased urgency to to provide for for Taiwan self-defense. But I think experts in the U.S. generally uh, assume that uh, an invasion is not imminent. And if that's accurate, if we believe also the Chinese statements that uh, an invasion is the last resort, if that is an accurate understanding of the issue, then I think generally there needs to be a wider understanding in, in order to uh, derail what has been uh, at least a relatively s- stable structural issue over the past uh, five decades that at least hasn't resulted in, in a kinetic conflict. Yeah, I, my sense is the balloon in many ways actually really epitomized the fragility of uh, U.S.-China relations. And we really have to take a, a little longer time frame in looking back in the sense that the last six and seven years with the trade war, which the Chinese leadership essentially said we were, they were going to fight it in the spirit of the Korean War. And also China's actual, uh, I mean, actual really um, alliance with Russia in many ways, or certainly uh, uh, no objection to Russia uh, making the moves into the Ukraine in terms of the military and certainly the invasion of Ukraine. All of that, and of course the pandemic and the intense uh, information and disinformation wars between the two countries in many ways, actually, all of those come together. You do have the sense, the feel, that the U.S. and China, it's not the question whether the two countries were going into a Cold War. It's the two countries were actively wrestling with each other in a way that was very dangerous. And especially, and in that context, actually, the Taiwan threat last year and also, and all that just give you the feel that it's almost, for me at least, it almost felt like actually we are just on the cusp or something of a Cuban Missile Crisis kind of atmosphere which is why many Chinese felt the same way as well. In fact, there were massive, really the Chinese stock markets uh, uh, plummeted partly because of that sense that war was imminent and so on. And of course, in that sense, I think actually uh, it's, in fact, on Chinese social media, it's really interesting when many people begin to say that U.S.-China relations, there is this big mega cycle, but the mega cycle started with that little uh, little uh, ping pong ball, but ended with this gigantic balloon, this round structure, right? That's another ball essentially in the air. And I think actually that really put it very much in context. I think actually we are always, rem- especially for many people who know intimately the history of the Cold War, especially during the height of the Cold War, there were a lot of efforts at confidence building, at open skies, at efforts at arms control, and a lot of those followed the Cuban Missile Crisis in particular. And I think there is a sense of urgency on both sides that, yeah, this relationship is just too important in a way for global peace uh, uh, to be left just really sliding into increasingly open confrontations and so on. And I, and I think actually in this case, the U.S. in particular has a lot of experience and so sort of in terms of the, all the people, and including some of the students of the Kissinger era and so on, this emphasis in thinking that you have to try to manage. And I think the Chinese side actually bought the rhetoric as well in the sense of the need to stabilize the U.S.-China relationship.
so we had this um all right so so we have the sort of um uh i think i think uh, washington clearly wanting to do something to stabilize the relationship also she um uh you know he's agreed to these meetings so apparently uh there, there was some sort of will will in there as well there was a debate which maybe we won't get into so much uh on this episode about you know just how much the u.s was quote unquote sacrificing uh in order to uh sort of bring up bring bring till today this like seeming rapprochement of uh, a handful of meetings in in washington where chinese uh, ministers came over to meet with the u.s commerce and treasury secretaries and then um uh you know the big uh, coup de grace is is Blinken uh, going to uh, going to China. So yeah, let's dive into what happened over the past weekend. It was a very interesting uh, setup because there were extraordinary low expectations. I think there was a readout by a senior NSC official uh, Kurt Campbell talking to the media before saying like, "Hey guys, like don't expect like anything to come out of this. This is not one of the meetings where you're going to have a big list of uh, of accomplishments." Um, but, um, uh, you know, there were some readouts, and I think there are interesting sort of wrinkles um, that you can, um, you can see reading at what the, the U.S. and China both said in their, um, uh, in their experience of the meetings. Uh, so what, um, uh, what, struck out to, what struck out to you two? Let's go, let's go sequentially. So first we have uh, uh, Qin Gong. Professor, who is he, and um, uh, what, um, uh, what came out of that meeting? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, expectation management is built into the White House operations nowadays. It's not just actually about foreign policy, it's also in elections and so on, right? So sort of, uh, in a way, Kirk uh, Campbell was doing his job. Uh, but of course, it's also a reflection of the frozen, the, the state of relations. And of course, the part of the uh, the issue here is also there is a desire to make sure that the Secretary of State would be the first to go rather than some other cabinet member, even though China appears to be much more willing to let the others happen. And I think there is some sense that the Secretary in particular has been leading the effort to realize the sort of uh, in terms of confronting uh, China and so on. Well, Chen Gang, of course, uh, uh, as many in the audience would remember, was actually the Chinese ambassador uh, to the United States. And uh, uh, in fact, he served as ambassador. Uh, uh, he succeeded the former ambassador, Xi Tiankai. Uh, and only actually, so sort of relatively recently, uh, a, a year and a half ago, more or less. And then he got this fast promotion in fact, to sort of back to China, was made a central committee member uh, last October, and then, of course, was made not only the minister, foreign minister, but also uh, uh, a state councillor. Uh, so it was an extremely fast promotion, which also indicates the importance that the Chinese leadership attaches to actually to U.S.-China relations. But there is a little history, though. Uh, because of the frozen state of U.S.-China relations, when Ambassador Chen was in the United States, he was immensely frustrated because he couldn't get to meet people in the administration in any serious way. Uh, uh, actually, he wasn't received by the president, for example, and so on. And likewise for the U.S. ambassador in China, and both actually were making efforts to travel, although the U.S. ambassador in China was having greater difficulty because of the zero COVID issues. Xinjiang, though, actually got a lot of uh, uh, attention back in China for traveling to Texas, to the Midwest, and other parts of the U.S. as well. And he has decent English and so on. He's serving Europe. Uh, and so in this case, actually, so he becomes the foreign minister. For, uh, the, but unlike Secretary uh, of State Blinken, uh, though, uh, Qinggang, even though he's the foreign minister, he actually is not the highest ranking foreign ministry official because within the Communist Party, there is this office for the Central Commission on Foreign Affairs. And the chairman of that commission happens to be Xi Jinping himself. The office director is the former uh, foreign minister, Mr. Wang Yi, who actually has gained uh, a tremendous amount of attention for being a lead wolf warrior in recent years, in, especially in the battling uh, uh, with the United States in the foreign policy uh, uh, arena. 
But in essence, that's where actually Qing Gang is. That's why he's the first one to meet. And of course, in some ways, it's a little bit of a tricky situation because we tend to think, well, shouldn't there be equals and meeting equals? And in the U.S. and China lineups, very often it doesn't work exactly like that. Uh, so that's uh, so Qing Gang and uh, uh, Secretary Blinken they met for uh, actually five and a half hours I think initially, and then followed by a working dinner. So altogether it came to something like seven and a half an hour. So apparently they had a long list of issues, and of course uh, uh, to talk to air their grievances, to talk about actually what they hope to achieve and so on. But of course. Here is the key also. So after that meeting, the Chinese bureaucracy works very hard in producing minutes, in summarizing what happened. And by the evening, overnight, they would actually be reporting what happened during the day, actually to Mr. Wang Yi, to Mr. Xi, uh, so that they can uh, actually uh, plan out what happens the next day. And likewise, in many ways, actually, the U.S. Uh, side would be doing the same uh, but probably less elaborately, uh, so sort of uh, uh, essentially with minutes uh, and, of course, communications back to the White House as well. Yeah, this is a long weekend. Come on. These poor, poor State Department officials, they don't get their time off. Um, uh, so, you know, one interesting thing I, I noticed from the, uh, the Qinggang readout um, was this idea that, like, both sides want to help, you know, more students, scholars, and business people sort of interact across the Pacific. And on the one hand, you know, it sounds nice, but like the the thing that actually has probably been most dramatic, um, which where, where there are like structural things that the government uh, isn't doing is on is on journalists. So that was one sort of oversight, which I assume uh, was brought up by the um, uh, uh, by the State Department, which uh, China apparently had no interest in, you know, letting the um, uh, U.S. passport holding uh, uh, journalists end up uh, making a, a grand triumphant return to their um, uh, uh, to their former posts in, in Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu and, and so on. Uh, Nathaniel, any any other thoughts on Qinggang before we move up to the uh, uh, before we uh, go up one one rung on the uh, the CCP hierarchy? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the sequence of meetings was was highly orchestrated. I. I do think most of the progress, uh, ironically, was made at the lower, lowest level during the first meeting, which was the longest, over seven hours, including the dinner. Um, you know, compared to the readouts with Wang Yi and Xi, um, the the meeting with Qin Gong is really where the action was. There was yeah. somewhat of an interesting, uh, perhaps a good cop, bad cop strategy going on here with with the uh, sequencing. I do think actually, and also I do want to say a little bit about the journalists, and uh, uh, which is interesting because I think China, of course, China was very aggressive in expelling some journalists, and then followed by U.S. Ex, uh, expulsions during the pandemic in basically in March, if uh, uh, you would recall. But what's interesting, however, is U.S. newspapers have not stopped stopped reporting on China. They are now reporting on China from Singapore, Taipei, Seoul. And so my hunch is that's getting, giving the mainland side or the PRC side some idea that maybe it's not as a good thing to actually force all those journalists to be reporting on China from those places, and especially from Taipei rather than from Beijing. Uh, uh, so I, my hunch is, therefore, there is actually uh, the Chinese side has a greater desire now to try to change some of those issues. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole, like, you know, Zhang Hao, Zhong Wo, the Gu thing, like, telling China's story well, like, the, the things that are actually the most humanizing and make the world empathize with China are ones you have to report from the ground because they're about sort of, like, random, you know, content creators or, like, small business people or someone owns a restaurant um, that you're not going to get if all you're reporting on is like you know uh high tech stuff and the trade war or whatever and it's just such a weird dynamic because like the other crazy thing is like Ling Ling Wei still has crazily sourced articles so it's not like you're 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 necessarily cutting off the sort of like gossip train that flies uh you know that dribbles out of um dribbles out of Zhongnan High into you know the Wall Street Journal and New York Times but what you're doing by having the journalists out is just like 
making it less of a human thing, China, um, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, uh, you know, if you are trying to tell, tell China's story well, but, but apparently they don't, uh, you know, people who have the decision to make on this are not, um, uh, don't necessarily see it that way. Um, let's now go to uh, Wang Yi. Uh, Professor, who's he and uh, what happened in that meeting? Well, of course, uh, Wang Yi uh, is uh, now actually a member of the Politburo, uh, which uh, so is 24 men uh, who are the uh, true power holders in China today. And of course, uh, he was the uh, previous uh, state councillor and minister of foreign affairs. He actually is a Japan specialist and served as Chinese ambassador to Japan at one point. Um, but of course, uh, as is known, his reason uh, actually is he apparently has a very good relationship uh, uh, with Xi. And of course, it's Xi who gave emphasis to the idea of telling China's story, uh, story well, of discourse power, and also helped to make the foreign ministry uh, uh, really, rather than the diplomatic ministry, the discourse power ministry in some way in recent years. And Wang Yi led that effort, and including uh, introducing the very aggressive style of pushing China's positions and attacking. Uh, and in fact, day in, day out, for example, representatives of the Chinese foreign ministry uh, today, still on Twitter, they would actually make comparisons between the US and China. And of course, always trying to put the US in an unflattering uh, light and so on. And Wang really led that effort. Uh, the irony, however, is given that he was a Japan specialist and so on, he actually was known initially for being very diplomatic and, and so on. So it just shows actually how the structure has changed. Now he is the director of the, ge the general office of the Central Commission on uh, uh, Foreign Affairs, which she leads. And of course, that commission also connects with the National Security Commission and some other commissions as well. So the Communist Party has a set of those commissions, which she uh, generally leads. Uh, in fact, there are, uh, he's really the chairman of most of those commissions in a way. And they are the daily, the operators of the key issues, uh, really in overseeing key issues and the gatekeepers also of the attention. Uh, uh, of Mr. Xi's as well. I do think there was a bit of, uh, it, it's funny, thing you mentioned this good cop, bad cop thing. I feel really bad for Blinken. Like, he's jet lagged. He just had like a like a 14-hour day the day before. And then right. Wang Yi and no, has to no listen. And no red carpet. Sorry. No red <laughs> carpet. And then and then Wang, he has to listen to Wang Yi tell him about, uh, what is it? The uh, the Lishi Luoji He Biran Chushi. So like the, the historical logic and the sort of inevitable tendency of like of like China's rise. And Blinken much just just supposed to be there like, man, I flew all the way here for this. Like, did we get this in Anchorage? Like, come on, guys. Uh anyways, uh Nathaniel, what um uh uh, uh thought thoughts on thoughts on Wang Yi in meeting number two? Yeah, I mean I guess First, it's it's a low bar, but the fact that the second day Blinken was in Beijing, he, he met with Wang Yi and, and she already exceeded some people's expectations. Um, although the, the meetings themselves uh, may not have been as productive. I mean, this idea of, of uh, Zhang Hao, Zhang Guo de Guxia, um, you know, the, the, his primary point during this three-hour meeting was that the U.S. has is misjudging China, uh, Wupan, Jiangguo, um, and this, you know, these in, incorrect, incorrect perceptions are leading to the incorrect policy. So most of it was about trying to explain, you know, China doesn't seek hegemony, um, China doesn't challenge the U.S. position, um, and that somehow if, if China can convince the U.S. of, of, its strategic intentions, then it'll lead to a correction in, in China's, uh, I mean, the United States uh, misguided policies, i.e. hyping the, the China threat, as he says, um, technological suppression, sanctions on Chinese officials, etc. So this meeting was really to, to blame the United States for the downturn in relations, um, 
potentially to to correct some sort of high-level strategic understanding about China's intentions. Um, not sure how successful that that will be, um, but it didn't seem like any attempt to, to reach uh, any any common ground on on any issues really. So my sense is this particular speech, uh, or what he, uh, he is essentially a lecture, uh, blaming the U.S. and so on. Uh, and asking the U.S. to reflect on what you've done and done wrong in understanding China and so on uh, is primarily uh, intended for the domestic audience in a way. But at the same time, emphasizing, oh, it's China is now trying to change everything. So actually, but that actually is very interesting as well in the sense that uh, it's suddenly basically China, the, the Wang Yi, in particular, on behalf of the Chinese leadership, is basically saying, look, we never try to be revisionist. We actually, in a righteous way, are the keepers of cooperation. We want to move forward and so on. Now, and of course, blaming the U.S. for, uh, uh, for messing things up. But at the same time, though, by taking that stand, it actually does put China, China in the position of saying that, well, this justifies us to continue. Now that the U.S. is coming to us to meet, therefore, we are willing to forgive and, of course, to work together on some issues, essentially. All right, so we had this sort of awkward will he or won't he a uh, few hours where it wasn't clear if Blinken was going to meet with Xi. I do like that the sort of idea that, like, maybe she. Like if the meetings went weren't went went really badly, would have just just decided to like I don't know go for a swim or something instead. But um, uh, they have this meeting. Um, anything in particular came out of that? Um, uh, that's that's notable to either of you two. There was this Lotus thing that's kind of interesting. There are a few notable notable uh, aspects of the readout. Obviously, much shorter, only a thirty-five minute uh, meeting. As Professor Yang said, there's a domestic audience for these readouts. There's clearly also an international audience. She multiple times mentioned the international community and the importance of handling the bilateral relationship well, uh, which bears on the entirety of the international community. So, and the U.S. as well mentioned in its readouts that uh, the U.S.-China relationship bears on bilateral interests as well as those of the international community. And, and this is kind of a, a wrestling match going on about which side is, is presenting itself as the more responsible actor to the international community. I mean, I think to begin with the fact that the United States is requesting all of these meetings regardless of the fact that it, it may look... Uh, somehow like we're clamoring for meetings have as some have suggested just shows the importance that the u.s places on on these meetings as well and for the domestic audiences you'll you'll notice that she always dis, uh, speaks about high level principles I, I mean this is the idea that she is this profound uh you know um He's this profound thinker. It's the the tangible issues in U.S.-China relations, uh, not not worth discussing in this meeting with the Secretary of State. Although hopefully they they do have those discussions at the head of state level. There are some historical echoes here too, right? Didn't Mao oftentimes when heads of state come, he like uh, you know a leader would say like I want to talk about this. Uh, this and that specific thing, and he'd be like, "No, no, no! I'm here to talk about history. Like, talk to Joe and lie about whatever it is you actually want to, uh, you know, get accomplished here." Well, but that's yeah, what he did to Nixon, a... right? Well, yeah. When Nixon went to China uh, to Beijing on February 21st, 1972, uh, Mao was not on the agenda, actually. So they didn't. Uh, there wasn't a agreement that he would get to meet with Mao, actually. And the timing was also essentially dependent on Mao's sleeping schedule, uh, in a way. And Mao had suffered a health issue after the death of Lin Biao, and so on. So he wasn't in the best shape. So part of the reason that Mao wasn't as interested in the details was also because of the, his health conditions. And, and Zhou Enlai was minding all the details and so on. 
uh, uh, actually. So sort of, uh, uh, so it, there was a unique historical issue there. Uh, of course, of course, Nixon was the world, the, the leader of the most powerful nation of the world at that point, and he goes to Beijing like and be treated like that. And it, as you can see, it's sort of a, in some ways there is a little bit of an echo, and especially because Mao tended to work at night and sleep into the day and so on, and his schedule was just not predictable and so on uh, in a way. And of course then there was the situation where Nixon went to see Mao when he finally was asked, oh, you come to see him now. Um, so Kissinger joined him, uh, so did Winston Law, but they excluded uh, 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 Secretary of State Rogers at that point, actually. So it was a remarkable kind of, uh, well, as you can see, it's sort of all those kind of things. This is nothing compared to uh, uh, that particular drama uh, uh, in a way. But what I, uh, to, um, to add to what Nathaniel was mentioning, the setting for Xi's meeting with Secretary Blinken executed really a sense of power of the kind of control that he has. Uh, the meeting took place in the Fujian Hall of the Great Hall of the People, and Fujian happens to be the place where Xi served the longest in his long career in the Chinese bureaucracy and so on. And the, the point of the painting behind him actually is the, a mountain range in Fujian. And then the lotus flower, of course, lotus in Chinese, uh, essentially the first uh, word, he, uh, sounds like both the first word for peace and also the first word for uh, cooperation. But there is another personal side to it. The lotus flower is practically the flower for the hometown of Madame Xi Jinping, uh, namely Madame Peng Liyuan. Uh, uh, so it's famous for also for the lotus. So as you can see, this is a setting that clearly there's a lot of thought uh, 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 that has gone into it, but also it shows that it's she who is in control. The setting is made to his order and so on. And it, it essentially primarily also him talking, but at the same time setting the general tone saying that, oh, you have reached some agreements on details. He didn't go into those, but those can be followed up. But he set the tone. But we can actually nonetheless speculate if there wasn't such a meeting and Secretary of State flies back, it just feeds into all the panel, uh, uh, sort of disenchantment with U.S.-China relations in Washington, D.C., and, and so on. And of course, it helps in some ways, with the coalition of the winning, in some ways, of the U.S. and the EU and Japan and so on, in trying, in allying to deal with China. So in that sense, actually, I think the Chinese leadership recognized the importance that they do want to treat uh, 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 Secretary uh, Blinken in such a way to manage this relationship. At the same time, though, the setting, the hierarchical setting, though, put Mr. Xi in the role of the leader of the room, the convener, the moderator, the really the teacher, practically, uh, in an echo of Mao, uh, actually. Yeah, so um, the sort of, we're on a podcast here, but the, um, uh, the visual was, was, was Xi at the head of, a, head of the table. Behind him was this, like, you know, gigantic scale green mountain uh, Chinese landscape <laughs> painting, which... Um, I don't think is like the prettiest, but for more on that, listen to um. Uh, it's the uh, Wuyi uh, Mountain, yeah, uh, from uh, Fujian, yeah. Uh, but for for more on, for more art criticism of, of CCP painting, uh, check out my uh, podcast uh, last year with uh, Arnold Arnold Chong. Anyways, um, and then sort of on both sides, um, you had uh, Blinken, and then uh, and then sort of Wang Yi set up with um uh, with with Xi, yeah, as like the elder statesman. Um, talking to these, you know, children at a um, uh, at a table about, you know, their table manners or what have you. Um, uh, perhaps the most interesting thing um, to come out of this was uh, Blinken's press conference, which he did at six twenty in the morning, um, uh, Beijing time. Poor guy. Um, so uh, let me just run down briefly uh, some of sort of my uh, notes and first impressions of that. He he hoped for progress on few food insecurity, particularly the Black Sea Grain Initiative. He talked about fentanyl, 
Um, I mean, who knows what's actually going to come out of that, but we'll see. Um, the people-to-people stuff, as we discussed, um, uh, you know, some future visits. Chingang is going to come to the U.S. apparently. And then you got to this interesting discussion around um, sort of decoupling and de-risking. The quote was, we don't want to economically contain China, no decoupling, but de-risking. This idea yeah. of like uh, conflating decoupling with economically containing China is interesting. Um, he also sort of talked about this idea of um, sort of narrowly ta- tailoring risks around dual use, um, uh, dual use military technology and technology used to um, repress. Uh, so I think China would take issue to that. China as well as, you know, ByteDance and Alibaba would probably take issue to that uh, uh, characterization of the, uh, of the export controls we've seen. Um, but he also sort of makes the case, which is very out of vogue nowadays, of uh, Chinese economic success actually being in the U.S. interest. So um, uh, he sort of mentioned uh, what Professor Yang said earlier is probably the sort of the biggest uh, sort of uh, sort of Damocles aside from Taiwan. This idea of Russian uh, Chinese support to Russia, saying that um, you know China's really promised to us that it won't give lethal aid, um, but quote we are concerned about private companies in China that may be providing. Assistance in some cases, dual use, and in some cases directed at helping Russia's military capacity in Ukraine. And he, quote, urged them to be vigilant. Um, You know, this is coming off of uh, reporting uh, that uh, uh, the U.S., uh, both at the very beginning of the um, uh, of the war in Ukraine, was was really aggressive to China, telling them don't do this, as well as over the past over this past spring, uh, apparently Blinken having to make the case again. presumably some new intelligence or what have you, making them uh, focused on uh, sort of reiterating the fact that this is a real red line for um, uh, for the U.S. So uh, last thing, this this idea of mill-to-mill communications is something that China is like clearly just not interested in. Um, the U.S. has been asking about this for, um, you know, uh, over a decade now in the, Biden, in the Obama administration. I remember this was something that was there was a lot of discussion about, but um, uh, those sort of like crisis communication, whatever things, um, you know, just in the Cold War, they didn't really exist before um, uh, uh, before a Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and I guess it might take something as bad as that for uh, uh, the current Chinese leadership to change their mind on this uh, this idea of mill of mill mill communications being something that's, um, uh, you know, in, in China's interest. So um, maybe to uh, conclude, is U.S. China relations boring? Um you know, if this is all we get out of a big meeting, uh, you know, aside from sort of readjusting our expectations of like the percentage of, of World War Three breaking out, which, you know, obviously is something very interesting. I mean, it seems to me to be just like the upside, um, you know, absent, you know, an alien invasion, um, uh, a, a new president or, um, uh, you know, she she, uh, you know, passing on from from uh, uh, from political power. It seems like there's really very little upside um, in these two countries doing anything besides not starting a war with each other. Well, I, I do think it's very important. Number one, the Russian uh, connection is very important. The fact that the administration could actually repeatedly go to China, tell them that you shouldn't do this and that. And I'm pretty sure during those meetings in Beijing, the U.S. side actually even included more detailed intelligence on what might be happening. So in that sense, actually keeping China from being too close to Russia in supporting Russia is of great importance, especially given China's capabilities. Of course, there are a lot of civilian goods and other things flowing into Russia. But for the U.S. actually and for the West, it's just so important in, in this so sometimes, of course, one of the big problems is it's hard to claim credit for what's not happening. But in fact, I, I really cannot emphasize how important it is, given how challenging it is for the Ukraine to combat uh, Russia. At the same time, also, the U.S. has this daunting task of keeping the coalition together. So in that sense, actually, while especially actually in terms of managing the relationship with China, so there are a lot of there is a lot of finesse here in terms of really I think actually when we talk about the managing the relationship uh, is managing the differences so that it doesn't threaten but at the same time 
In fact, one could imagine if China suddenly turns 180 degrees, becomes actually such a nice partner, that also could be very challenging for Washington because then it would actually help to dissolve the kind of get together in terms of the West and so on.、Uh, so, in some sense, actually.、Um, China, by being playing tough, actually gets into the trap of basically being portrayed as this rising geopolitical、uh, adversary、uh, going forward. Yeah, I think there's a there's a really interesting dynamic of、um, sort of America trying to herd the the global、uh, the you know global geopolitical cats of the the G7 and and, and NATO allies and whatnot and. Getting them to focus and recognize that China is a you know challenging and a competitor,、um, maybe not one in the U.S. Not wanting World War III to start anytime soon. So Bill Bishop tweeted out, you know, I hope the PRC realizes that Biden is trying to stabilize things and take the hint rather than just lecture in private too that everything is America's fault. The message from G7 leaders, quote, "Don't be the president that gets into a war with China," was important to Biden, and、um, you know maybe that is sort of the、uh, a hopeful arc is yeah maybe the the, the sort of Like on the one hand,、uh, I'm sure there were sharper words said、um, uh, b- behind closed doors, and and your idea that you know, aside from just saying, yeah, we think there might be some private、um, uh, companies doing bad things. You know, we've seen entity listings right over the past few months of、uh, of Chinese firms getting caught for、um, uh, you know shipping drones and 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 what have you to the PRC. So that that balance of being tough when being tough is important, but also not. Sort of going too far over your skis from the perspective of, of of wanting to sort of build this global coalition about this understanding of what um、uh, you know she's trying to in twenty twenty three is really all about is a very tricky balance and the the sort of trade offs that may have been have had to have been made over the past few months to to set the groundwork to um to have this meeting it's it's a little early to tell I think whether um、uh, um whether it has necessarily paid off for the um.、Uh, Um, for the administration to,、um, uh, you know, potentially have slow rolled some stuff and, you know, made this、uh, Tiananmen Square uh, uh, June fourth announcement like one paragraph instead of the five that it's been for the past、um, uh, few years. You know, all those all those things where it's it's um、uh, you know we're we're still on the day that they had the meeting, so it's a little early to to make um、uh, such a big judgment about whether or not this all made sense. But there there clearly is a lot of thinking going on about having to. To balance a lot of different aspects of this relationship,、um, uh, Nathaniel, any any closing thoughts about what、uh, what we saw and what we might um,、uh, um, you know what it might mean for the future? I do think if we can keep U.S. China diplomacy boring,、um, that might not be the worst thing. Actually,、uh, you know, discussing tangible,、uh, low hanging fruit in the relationship,、um, you know, not turning it into A conversation about whether the U.S. is reverting to a policy of of engagement. I think the illusions of、uh, you know shaping China's political system or or economic system at this point.、Uh, I think those in Washington, policymakers in Washington, have、uh, given up those illusions.、Um, but we can still maintain communication to try to resolve.、Uh, Specific issues in ways that advance U.S. interests, and、um, from here, I think the next steps are pretty clear. That Chingang may visit、uh, D.C. We may have follow-on visits,、uh, Raimondo or, or Secretary Yellen to China.、Um, she may attend APEC in November, and、uh, I think this is、uh, what how U.S.-China diplomacy should be. The two sides maintain. Communication, try to、uh, solve issues, and、um, I don't think the U.S. should give concessions to bring China to the negotiating table. Obviously, that reinforces a a pattern in Beijing where they can use dialogue as a bargaining chip. But I do think the U.S. generally is maintaining its、uh, competitive approach. As you mentioned, Jordan, there have been. Over 50 entity listings in the past month related to supercomputing, involvement in Iran's missile program, companies involved in fentanyl precursor production.、Um, I think if the U.S. was really orchestrating a thaw for its own sake in the interest of returning to the engagement policy, we、uh, 
would probably avoid doing things like that. In addition to uh, a trilateral reconnaissance, drone reconnaissance agreement with uh, Taiwan and Japan, uh, you can point to examples on all sides. I still think the administration is simultaneously competing and pursuing diplomacy, which has uh, been their strategy from the beginning. I guess I'm uh, boring, you know, Anchorage and Balloon Gate, good for, good for ratings. Boring uh, diplomacy that, you know, um, lowers the likelihood of World War III less, but I'm, uh, I'm willing to sacrifice my, uh, my YouTube ad dollars for the future of humanity. Uh, uh, Professor, final words? This is truly the most consequential relationship, and it's just so important and so much rise on this relationship going forward. So I think actually it's sort of, uh, we are, however, just getting allowed uh, at this particular moment. I, I do hope that both countries build on this uh, in a way. Uh, not that you could expect to get back to the time of the 10-year visas and frequent travels, but certainly actually create the conditions for some sort of a greater stability in global peace. Um, and it's good for humanity in many ways. Uh, so sort of, uh, but at the same time, however, looming on the horizon are U.S. elections and so on. And who knows? Uh, <laughs> may not be the repeat of the balloon, but there are always a few uh, things that happen that are unexpected as well. Thank you too so much for being part of China. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for having, having me. You promised the world, and I fell for it. I put you first and you adored it Set fires to my forest And you let it burn Sing off key in my chorus Cause it wasn't yours I saw the signs and I ignored it Rose-colored glasses are distorted Set fire to my purpose And I let it burn You got off in the hurting when it wasn't yours Yeah We'd always go into it blindly I needed to lose you to find me This dancer was killing me softly I needed to hate you to love me Yeah To love, love, yeah To love, love, yeah To love, yeah I needed to lose Turn me down and I'll show him And so the moms you replace us Like it was easy Made me think I deserved it In the thick of healing Yeah We'd always go into it blindly I needed to lose you to find me This dancer was killing me softly I needed to hate the world and I fell for it I put you first and you adored it set fires to my forest and you let it burn sing off key in my chorus Check
Put